That's right. They were taken captive, not simply conquered and oppressed by another nation, but actually removed from the land. They were taken into exile. And that's what God promised back in the Torah. He said, if you keep on being disobedient, that eventually I will remove you from the land. Who carried away the people of Israel? What empire? The Assyrian Empire in 722 or 721 BC. Who carried away the people of Judah? Babylonians, or starting in 605 BC to 587 when they're the third invasion. But God was long suffering with these two kingdoms, and He constantly sent prophets to turn them back. And we're going to look at one of those prophets today by the name of Amos. These are our outline for today's class. We're first going to look at who was Amos? What information do we know about this person? What was his message? His message of warning? How was Israel supposed to respond? What did God promise Israel in the distant future through Amos? And then how can we apply the truths that we see in the book of Amos? Let's pray before we go on. Father, we pray that you would work among your, or Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, please work among your people now. Sanctify, instruct, mature your people as we encounter this amazing book that you gave us through the prophet Amos. I pray that you'd help me to be able to communicate it clearly, answer questions well, and God, I pray that this would uh, be a time of growth for your church. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, please open your Bibles to the book of Amos. It's an easy-to-miss book, but it's in the Old Testament. Go past Isaiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel, and then it's just three books more. And there you'll find Amos. In your, if you're using the Pew Bible, it's on page 913, so that would be an easier way to find it. But we're looking at the book of Amos. It's only nine chapters long. One of the latter prophets. We don't have time to read the whole book, but we will sample a number of passages in the book to give you a feel for the whole book. But let's start by asking our first question. Who was Amos? And we get some information right in the first verse of the book of Amos. So look at chapter 1, verse 1. And let's read that first verse. We'll bring in another verse in just a moment. But Amos 1.1, follow along as I read. The words of Amos, who was among the sheep herders from Tekoa, which he envisioned in visions concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and the days of Jeroboam, son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. All right, with just that, let's observe a number of things. What is Amos' profession? He's a shepherd. Shepherd or a sheep herder. We do hear later on in Amos 7, 14 to 15 that he did some raising figs on the side. I'll just read those verses to you. Amos 7, 14 to 15. Then Amos replied to Amaziah, I am not a prophet, nor am I the son of a prophet, for I am a herdsman and a grower of sycamore figs. But the Lord took me from following the flock, and the Lord said to me, Go prophesy to my people Israel. So Amos is a shepherd. He's not a career prophet or a religious teacher, but God took him from his work in the field to send an important message to the kingdom of, or to send an important message. Now back in verse 1, it says that Amos is from Tekoa. This was a little town about 10 miles south of Jerusalem. So that means Amos was from Israel or from Judah? If he's from a town that's south of Jerusalem, is he from Israel or Judah? Yeah, Judy. Judah, that's right. He's a Jude or Judean. He's from Judah. But which kingdom does his vision concern? Israel. So he's, a, he's someone from Judah who's actually traveling to Israel to send a message. His message is for Israel. Now Amos' prophecy comes in the days of Uzziah and Jeroboam. And that would be Jeroboam II, not the first king of Israel. So this places Amos' prophecy somewhere between 800 to 750 B.C. This also means that Amos was a contemporary of Jonah, Hosea, and Isaiah, all ministering about the same time. It says that this prophecy was given two years before the earthquake. What is this earthquake? We can't say for sure. But the book of Zechariah also records in Zechariah 14.5, there was a significant earthquake that took place during the reign of Uzziah. Josephus, the first century 
A.D. Jewish historian claims that this earthquake actually happened after Uzziah, the king of Judah, pridefully attempted to offer incense instead of the priests in God's temple. Now, the Bible doesn't say anything about that, but that was what Josephus claimed. It was a significant earthquake that the people at the time would know about. Now, what were conditions in Israel, that's the northern kingdom, during Amos' time? Well, 2 Kings 14, 23-29 tells us, we won't read that passage, but it tells us about the time of Jeroboam II. It's actually a time of prosperity. Time of prosperity in Israel after a time of formerly being downcast and oppressed. Their king, though evil, and a follower in the ways of the first Jeroboam, nonetheless had a long, stable reign of 41 years. That's a, that's a blessing. Israel saw military success under Jeroboam II. They restored much of the territory that had been lost under previous kings, and they even made territorial gains in Syria. Why had these good things happened, especially to an evil king and an evil people? Well, first, the second Kings 14, 26 to 27 tells us the reason. It's, uh, this is what it says. For the Lord saw the affliction of Israel, which was very bitter. For there was neither bond nor free, nor was there any helper for Israel. The Lord did not say that he would blot out the name of Israel from under heaven, but he saved them by the hand of Jeroboam, the son of Joash. In other words, God simply was gracious. He had compassion on the people. Even though they were not following after the Lord, he said, I'm going to be gracious. I'm going to give you a measure of restoration. I'm going to give you success and prosperity for a time under this king, Jeroboam II. Now, that was to evoke a response, for sure, from Israel. But how did Israel respond? Well, let's find out, because that has a lot to do with Amos's message. Amos is going to give a message of warning. Let's see what that message actually says. We're looking at our second question now. What was Amos' warning? Well, it starts with an image. Look just one verse down into verse 2. Amos 1, verse 2. He said, the Lord roars from Zion, and from Jerusalem he utters his voice, and the shepherd's pasture grounds mourn, and the summit of Carmel dries up. Now this is a, a significant way to start his message. A roar comes from what kind of animal? A lion. We normally associate lion, or roars with lions. But here Amos says, Yahweh roars. The lion of Judah himself is roaring. God roars like a lion. What is said to instantly react to the lion's roar or to the Lord's roar? What's that? Warning. Well, that would be a, a, sound, a sound of warning, but there's something right in verse 2 that actually reacts. It changes because of this roar. Right, so the summit of Carmel and the shepherd's pasture. The land itself reacts. It says it mourns and it dries up. Notice the term shepherd's pasture grounds. This isn't any old land. This is a land that has fertile pasture for sheep. The sheep may be currently enjoying some nice food on these pastures, but what does the lion's roar mean for them? Danger, right? If you're a sheep... And you hear a lion roaring, that means danger. It's danger. And this is the way he starts his book, by saying the Lord roars, the land reacts. What about the sheep? Already you can see Amos' background playing a role in the way he declares the message. But which sheep are in danger? If you scan down chapter 1, you see that God pronounces a series of judgments on different kingdoms for the evils that they have done. And all with the same formula. Look at Amos 1.3. It says, Thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of Damascus, and for four I will not revoke its punishment. Go down to Amos 1.6. Thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of Gaza, and for four I will not revoke its punishment. And we see the same formula with other kingdoms. Tyre in verse 9. Edom in verse 11. Ammon in verse 13. And then if you go to verse 1 of chapter 2, Moab all having these pronouncements of judgment with the same formula. For three transgressions and for four, I will not revoke its punishment. 
And by the way, why would these nations be relevant to Israel? Ammon, Moab, Damascus, Gaza. They're the neighbors, exactly. They are all of Israel's neighbors on different sides. So um, there are messages of judgment for each of these neighbors. Now notice the repeated rhetorical device involving numbers. What is God emphasizing by denoting a judgment for three, scratch that, four wicked acts? What is he emphasizing? Yeah, Rob. Yes, certainly it emphasizes the the repetition of these sins, but specifically the idea of three, rather four. Why say it like that? Yeah, Danny. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right, Danny. It has to do with the fullness of the judgment or the fullness of the sin that brings the judgment. It's like... Well, John MacArthur describes it well in in his study Bible. With three, the cup of iniquity was full and judgment was warranted. With four, it overflowed. It's almost like he's saying they were already ripe, but then they added more to it. They're extremely ripe for judgment. It was three, scratch that, four judgments that are bringing the Lord's fury. Just as you were saying, Danny. Now, certainly we shouldn't take that Absolutely, literally, it's not that they did three specific or four specific evil acts. There are many more evil acts than that. But this is, a, this is just a way of rhetorically emphasizing how each nation is ripe for judgment. Now, up to, this, up to this point, you probably would have gotten a, or Amos probably would have gotten a hearty amen from the people of Israel. Yeah, go, lion, go get those evil neighbors. Get those sheep. But now look at chapter 2, verse 4. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Judah and for four, I will not revoke its punishment. Uh Uh-oh. And now verse 6. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Israel and for four, I will not revoke its punishment. What is God saying about Israel in comparison to the other nations? Just like the other nations. They are just as wicked, just as deserving of God's punishment. Their cup of iniquity is also overflowing and calling out for the justice of God. Yahweh comes for them too, like a lion coming for sheep. What evils has evil, or what evils has Israel committed? Well, let's read and observe verses six to eight. With each one of these pronouncements of judgment, God outlines some of the sins that the people have committed. What does He say about Israel? Because They sell the righteous for money and the needy for a pair of sandals. These who pant after the very dust of the earth on the head of the helpless also turn aside the way of the humble. And a man and his father resort to the same girl in order to profane my holy name. On garments taken as pledges, they stretch out beside every altar. And in the house of their God, they drink the wine of those who have been fined. Now, these are kind of given quickly to us, but what are the sins that God is indicting in Israel? What's one of them? See that? Yeah, a form of immorality here where you have um, a father and son going to the um, the same woman that I think is representative of immorality as a whole. What else? Idolatry, right? And we see that with the altars um, in the very end. They stretch out beside every altar in the house of their God. So we have false worship. What else? Yeah. They sell the righteous for money and the needy for a pair of sandals. The, they are oppressing the poor and they are oppressing the righteous. I think we can say there's also one more. Maybe just hinted at here, but definitely explained a little bit more directly later on in the book. But this idea of Um, they are stretching out on garments and drinking wine. It's this idea of a luxurious living that pays little attention to God. There's immorality, there's false worship, there's great oppression of the poor for financial gain, and there's this 
materialistic, pleasure-seeking living in the nation. What will be the consequences for these sins and others like these? Well, it does say a little bit in chapter 2 itself, but I think we get a, um, uh, a better idea of that in chapter 3. Look at chapter 3 and verse 8. We're going to see what is the consequence for these sins. Chapter 3, verse 8, and we'll read down to verse 13. A lion has roared. Who will not fear? The Lord God has spoken. Who can but prophesy? Proclaim on the citadels in Ashdod and on the citadels in the land of Egypt and say, assemble yourselves on the mountains of Samaria and see the great tumults within her and the oppressions in her midst. They do not know how to do what is right, declares the Lord. These who hoard up violence and devastation in their citadels. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, an enemy, even one surrounding the land, will pull down your strength from you and your citadels will be looted. Thus says the Lord, just as the shepherd snatches from the lion's mouth a couple of legs or a piece of an ear, so will the sons of Israel dwelling in Samaria be snatched away with the corner of a bed and the cover of a couch. Hear and testify against the house of Jacob, declares the Lord God, the God of hosts. Let's observe. Notice the image of God as the roaring lion once again. With what Specifically, is God's roar connected in verse 8? We're not just talking about a symbolic roar. It's tied to something that's tangible. His speech, right? His word. Or we could even say prophecy. The Lord God has spoken. Who can but prophesy? God's roar is God's word. God invites Israel's pagan neighbors to come give witness of something. Of what will these neighbors testify? They're going to look at something in Samaria. What are they looking at? Tumults, oppressions, that they don't know how to do anything right, violence and devastation. It says you're going to see all of these things. And therefore, something is going to happen to Israel. What does God promise will happen in verse 11? An enemy will come. Mm -hmm. Verse 11, an enemy will come, they will surround, they will destroy the citadels, and they will plunder the land. And then there's this violent image in verse 12. What is the image? There's a snatching going on. Who's snatching what? Well, there is a lion, but it's actually not the lion doing the snatching. Yeah, Sue. Yeah, exactly. It's like a lion has grasped hold of a sheep. The shepherd's trying to pull the sheep out of the lion's mouth, but all he's getting are a few body parts, a couple legs, the piece of an ear. He's not able to get the whole lamb. It's taken by the lion. What does God say this snatching of the shepherd pictures? Israel being snatched away from Samaria. Israel being snatched away from the land. And God also says, those snatched away will escape with only the corner of a bed and the cover of a couch. All right, let's interpret this. What is God's roar? It's the prophecy. You could even say it's the book of Amos. This is the word of the prophet to Israel. Listen to the lion's roar. This is God's roar. Listen. 
by inviting Israel's neighbors to observe Samaria, what does God emphasize about Samaria and Israel? Look at the oppressions. Look at the, how they don't know how to do anything right. Look at the violence. Why would he invite Israel's neighbors to see that? What is he emphasizing about Israel? Are the neighbors righteous? No, they're wicked and pagan themselves. So why bring them to look at Israel? Okay, it could be partly a warning to those nations. But what else? Yeah, Danny. Yeah, I think that's definitely true too. He's showing them that it doesn't matter even if they're his own people, he will judge wickedness. I think we can also say that it's to emphasize just how wicked Israel is. The other nations are kind of, these other wicked nations are kind of come look and be like, wow, they're really evil. Even though th these other nations are wicked themselves, they're going to say, these, these people in Israel and Samaria, they are very wicked. They're going to give testimony to the great wickedness of Israel, even exceeding their own. But of course, they will also be warned of the judgment themselves. Now think about the snatching image again in verse 12, because it's very important that we appreciate the details. Is the majority of the lamb snatched away by the shepherd or just the minor bits and pieces? Just the bits and pieces. What happens to the rest of the lamb then? What? It's destroyed. It's eaten by the lion. It's consumed. Verse 12 says that Israel will be snatched from Samaria in the same way as the shepherd snatches those bits. Therefore, what will happen to the minority of Israelites? That's right. They won't be destroyed. If they're being snatched away, they're the ones being taken into exile, which means the majority then will be what? They'll be destroyed. They'll be the ones that are consumed by the lion. Now some would say, no, 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 the minority represents the people left in the land and the majority are taken away. But that doesn't fit the image. The lion is not the one doing the snatching. It is the shepherd. He says, it is the shepherd snatching that is going to be like what happens to my people in Israel. Just the couple of legs, just the piece of an ear will be snatched and taken away. The rest will be destroyed and consumed. That's right. The lion is the one doing the destruction. It is the shepherd, at least in that image, that is doing the saving and uh, carrying away. So if this is what's going to happen to Israel, Israel, God is saying Israel will be destroyed, but a surviving remnant will be carried away and will be taken into exile. And then we have that last statement. What is God indicating about the survivors when he mentions the corner of a bed and the cover of a couch? Kind of a funny detail. We could say it indicates perhaps a couple of things. Yeah, Rob. To use a modern phrase, it's like you're going to survive by the skin of your teeth. <laughs> yeah, it's like, um, well, maybe not so much survive, but it, it is the idea that you only got like the smallest bit to take with you. It's like um, you couldn't take the whole bed. You only got a corner of it. You couldn't take the whole couch. You just got the cover of it. Like, that's all you could take. And I think that indicates the, the suddenness of the snatching. They were yanked away so quickly, that's all they could take. But what else does this image of the bed and couch indicate? Not only do they, are they able to escape with little, and it's a sudden snatching, as if they were yanked from their beds. But also, they are on their beds. And we, we already heard them a little bit, already heard a little bit earlier about how they're reclining and drinking wine. 
This is another image of their luxurious living. They're not ready for something to come upon them. They're just enjoying their luxury. They're, you know, remember back to David and the sin with Bathsheba. Where was he right before that sin took place? On his bed, not doing anything, not going out with the people of Israel. So this, this idea of only taking the corner of a bed or a cover of a couch, it's like Israel was just enjoying its sleep, enjoying its luxurious rest, and suddenly they're yanked away. And they only can take the corner of a bed or the cover of a couch. They can barely take anything with them, those that even survive. So this is a severe judgment. This is fearful news for the flock of Israel. No wonder the land instantly dries up at even the pronouncement of it in Amos 1-2. God says, great calamity is coming upon Israel because of their great evil. Now, we only got to see the initial pronouncement of that evil, but if we were to keep going on in the book of Amos, we would see more specific descriptions. And I'll share a couple of them with you just so that you can get it filled out in your mind. Amos 4, 1, 2, and you can flip to these if you like as I read them. God says, Hear this word, you cows of Bashan, who are on the mountain of Samaria, who oppress the poor, who crush the needy, who say to your husbands, Bring now that we may drink. Just a couple of verses down, Amos 4, 4 to 5. Enter Bethel and transgress. In Gilgal, multiply transgression. Bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithes every three days. Offer a thank offering also from that which is leavened. And proclaim free will offerings. Make them known, for so you love to do, you sons of Israel, declares the Lord God. Now, he's not actually commending them there. That's some divine sarcasm. He says, you're going to your sacred places, you're bringing your offerings, but you're not even bringing the right offerings, and you're doing transgressions the whole time. Amos 5.12. God says, For I know your transgressions are many, and your sins are great. You who distress the righteous, and accept bribes, and turn aside the poor in the gate. Down to verse 21, verse 23, the same chapter. I hate, I reject your festivals, nor do I delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer up to me burnt offerings and your grain offerings, I will not accept them. And I will not even look at the peace offerings of your fatlings. Take away from me the noise of your songs. I will not even listen to the sound of your harps. And then Amos 6, verses 4 to 7. Those who recline on beds of ivory and sprawl on couches and eat lambs from the flock and calves from the midst of the stall, who improvise to the sound of the harp and, like David, have composed songs for themselves, who drink wine from sacrificial bowls while they anoint themselves with the finest of oils. Yet they have not grieved over the ruin of Joseph. Therefore, they will now go into exile at the head of the exiles, and the sprawler's banqueting will pass away. So you're seeing reemphasize the same things that God first condemned in Israel back in chapter 2. You are oppressing the poor. You are oppressing the righteous. You are seeking to gain wealth for yourself, you're looking to live luxuriously with no attention to what is righteous, no attention to God, and then, on top of all of that, you pretend to worship me. I hate all of this. This is all evil. And this is made even more heinous considering who Israel actually is. They are a special people. Just go back to Amos 2, 9 to 11, actually won't read that passage, but God reminds Israel that he previously was the one who destroyed their enemies. He destroyed the, or I think the Amorites. He gave Israel the land of Canaan. He raised up prophets for Israel. And then Israel just left the Lord. They silenced the prophets. They went after other gods. God also says in Amos 3, 1 to 2, Hear this word which the Lord has spoken against you, sons of Israel, against the entire family which he brought up from the land of Egypt. You only have I chosen among all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. Your evil is even greater considering who you are. You are my people. Look at what I've done for you continually. 
And as we saw in the beginning, he had just given them a period of prosperity that was totally undeserved. But what do they do with it? They use it as an excuse to turn away from God. Oh, everything's going well. Let's just enjoy life. Get the wine. Let's go have a, a pleasant worship experience at, the, at Gilgal or at Bethel. Israel's evil was quite, quite great. Israel was God's special people for whom he had done such mighty works, yet Israel was acting more wicked now than their wicked neighbors. Israel was indeed ripe for judgment, and God, like a roaring lion, was warning through Amos. He was warning the doomed sheep of Israel. Questions so far? By the way, I apologize for the flickering. I know that, that keeps going on. Sorry if that's distracting. Sound, uh, sound people, is there anything I should do with my computer? No? Nothing? Nothing right now? Okay. <clears throat> Hopefully this stays relatively stable. Yeah, Rob. I had a question. Yeah. Usually, usually the remnant people are like the people that are the right, that are righteous and actually live pure lives towards God while everyone else is like bowing down to Baal. Mm-hmm. Okay, uh, good question, Rob. Am I saying that the remnant, because normally the remnant is the remnant of the righteous, we often hear the remnant of various nations being the righteous, but we have this description of certain people being destroyed and certain people being carried away, the, the remnant being carried away, are, am I saying that they're evil just like the rest and that's why it's happening to them? We actually don't get any description of why certain people are saved and certain people are not. Why are some allowed to live? Are they more righteous? Are they, um, is there something else that's particular about them? We know, um, as we're going to hear in just a moment, part of the reason why a remnant survives is that God is just going to be gracious to Israel. He's going to remember his covenant. He's not going to destroy them utterly. But I think we can also say from some of the other prophets writing in the, in the, um, the end of the Old Testament that it is the righteous who are often the ones who are surviving. It is the righteous who are being spared people like, um, I think, uh, Jeremiah comes to mind with Judah and, and um, Daniel and some others, they are the ones that go into exile and they continue to look to the Lord. But I can't say that necessarily everyone who goes into exile was righteous. So far in, in, in the book of Amos, we don't get a description of why certain, certain people survive and other people don't. Other questions? Yeah, Joe. Good question. How is Amos and the other prophets like him, how do they actually communicate the message? Are they standing in the marketplace? Are they going into the king's court? How are they actually talking to the people? Well, we don't get a description of that, at least in the book of Amos. We, we will see at one point how um, a priest and the king react to Amos. I imagine that he's not going straight into the king's hall because it sounds like there's a report that gets sent to the king. So I'm, I would guess that he's just going to public places and trying to pe speak to the people so that they would listen. But we're not told specifically. Yeah. Okay, uh, you're asking a question. Can you, asking for how, how did the kings of Israel get appointed into their position or how did they come to have their position? It varies a little bit. Sometimes a, a person will lead a coup against the previous king. Sometimes with a, a measure of, um, not condoning, but God actually anoints that leader and he says, you are going to be the one that I'm raising up to judge this person's house. That was the case of Jehu on the house of Ahab through his son. And he destroyed the previous house and took the throne for himself. But other times during Israel's history, 
the son did succeed the father. And I think that is the case with Jeroboam. Or it, we, we heard that earlier. Jeroboam II was the son of Joash. So he actually just inherited the throne from his father. So it does vary. Sometimes God doesn't anoint a specific ruler to replace the previous ruling house, but other times it's just the normal succession. We have to keep moving on, so hold on to your other questions. We've seen Amos' message of warning, but how is Israel supposed to respond? Because this isn't simply a message of doom. There is something that Israel can do. Well, you could probably already answer that question. What was Israel supposed to do? God prophesies this judgment. It's for the point of Israel actually doing what? Yeah, repent. Turn back to the Lord. Repent. Turn away from evil. Turn back to the Lord. But by the time Amos is prophesying, Israel's not doing that, even though they've had plenty of opportunities. Look at Amos chapter 4, verses 6 to 13. You can see that Amos is not coming out of nowhere. This has been part of her process. Amos 4, verse 6. God says to Israel, but I gave you also cleanness of teeth in all your cities and lack of bread in all your places. Yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. Furthermore, I withheld the rain from you while there were still three months until harvest. Then I would send rain on one city and on another city I would not send rain. One part would be rained on while the part, the part not rained on would dry up. So two or three cities would stagger to another city to drink water but would not be satisfied. Yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. I smote you with scorching wind and mildew, and the caterpillar was devouring your many gardens and vineyards, fig trees and olive trees, yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. I sent a plague among you after the manner of Egypt. I slew your young men with a sword along with your captured horses, and I made the stench of your camp rise up in your nostrils, yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. I overthrew you as God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah, and you were like a firebrand snatched from a blaze. Yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. Therefore, thus will I do to you, O Israel, because I will do this to you, prepare to meet your God, O Israel. We'll actually just stop right there. So what lesser judgments has God already sent on Israel to turn them back? What was one of them? Drought. What was another? Danielle? Yeah, the mildew, which would have affected the crops and the caterpillar, so that would be part of a famine. And he mentions famine also earlier. So different reasons why the crops fail. What else? I sent you a plague, like I sent on the plagues of Egypt. And what was the one more? Yeah, Judy. What? We have drought, yes. I sent people to attack you. Yeah, he says, um, I sent, I slew your young men by the sword along with your captured horses. So famine, drought, plague, conquest, defeat in battle, but Israel's response every time repeated the same way in the passage, yet you have not returned to me. Therefore, God says in verse 12, prepare to meet your God. But this is not a meeting of comfort or deliverance. This isn't like that other passage, Behold your God, O Israel. Like, yes, the deliverer, the savior. No, that's not how he's coming. Prepare to meet your God. He's coming in judgment. The lion is coming. But even still, there was something that Israel could do. Look at Amos chapter 5. Amos chapter 5, verse 4. And we'll read to verse 7. Verse 4. For thus says the Lord to the house of Israel, Seek me that you may live. But do not resort to Bethel, and do not come to Gilgal, nor cross over to Beersheba. For Gilgal will certainly go into captivity, and Bethel will come to trouble. Seek the Lord that you may live, or he will break forth like a fire, o, o house of Joseph, and it will consume with none to quench it for Bethel. For those who turn justice into wormwood and cast righteousness down to the earth. What could Israel still do? They could repent. They could seek the Lord and live. God commands them to do this. He's pleading with them to do this. 
He tells them not to resort to Bethel, Gilgal, or Beersheba, which were their useless sites of idolatrous worship. Beersheba was actually in Judah, so apparently they had spread their worship there. God says, don't look for salvation uselessly and any other God. Turn to me and live. The only way to avoid the judgment is to turn to me. Now, what does turning to God mean? Well, he makes it a little bit clearer in verse 14, verses 14 and 15. Seek good and not evil, that you may live. And thus may the Lord God of hosts be with you, just as you have said. Hate evil, love good, and establish justice in the gate. Perhaps the Lord God of hosts may be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. So we see what turning to God means, what seeking God means. Trusting him, loving him, being obedient to him. Repent, God says, turn from your wicked way. Love God and love justice. And then there's this perhaps statement. The speaker acknowledges that even though their evil is so great as to perhaps make judgment on the kingdom unavoidable, repentance might still totally save them. Perhaps God could spare Israel from this judgment. Now, is he right? If the people of Israel repented as a whole, would God relent in his judgment? He would. And we can know that because where else do we see that same thing demonstrated? Yeah, Twain. Nineveh, right? In fact, remember, Jonah is a contemporary of Amos. So this was happening around the same time. And it's even spoken about in the same language. Jonah 3, verses 8 to 9. The king of Nineveh, or the, yeah, the, the king of Nineveh instructs his people but both man and beast must be covered with sackcloth and let men call on God earnestly that each may turn from his wicked way and from the violence which is in his hands. Same thing Israel was called to do. Who knows? God may turn and relent and withdraw his burning anger so that we will not perish. Perhaps, perhaps God will turn away. And that's exactly what God does. Jonah 3.10, when God saw their deeds, that they turned from their wicked way, then God relented concerning the calamity which he had declared he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. Now, this is not God being changeable. This is not God being like a man and changing his mind. This is the way he always acts. This is his character. His judgment is always, in a sense, conditional. As long as you keep not repenting, the judgment will come. But if you turn back to the Lord, you'll be spared. Israel could still be spared. There was still hope. As long as the judgment had not yet come, the kingdom could still be spared if they repented. If they turned from evil, God would relent. God would let them live, and God would even bless them again. But would Israel repent? We see a, an ominous response already in the book of Amos. Look at chapter 7. Chapter, chapter 7, verses 10 to 13. Chapter 7, verse 10. Then Amaziah, the priest of Bethel, sent word to Jeroboam, king of Israel, saying, Amos has conspired against you in the midst of the house of Israel. The land is unable to endure all his words. For thus Amos says, Jeroboam will die by the sword, and Israel will certainly go from its land into exile. Then Amaziah said to Amos, Go, you seer, flee away to the land of Judah, and there eat bread, and there do your prophesying. But no longer prophesy at Bethel, for it is the sanctuary of the king, and a royal residence. So we see two of the leaders of Israel, one a religious, one the political. They are not repenting. But more than that, what else do they seek to do? They don't simply refuse to react the way that Amos wants them to and God wants them to. On top of that, what do they want to do to Amos? They want to silence him. They want to get rid of him. They don't want to hear this prophecy anymore, and they don't want the people to hear it either. They want to shut up God's prophet. They want to get rid of him. They don't want to hear the word anymore, and they don't want the people to hear it either. And this seems to be the, the way people were reacting to Amos as a whole. Yeah, what were you going to say, Dwayne? 
Exactly. We'll talk a little bit later on, but that does sound like the way things are today. Therefore, God prophesied one other judgment by Amos, and perhaps it's the most frightening of all. Turn to Amos chapter 8. Actually, I guess it's right in front of you. Amos 8, verses 11 and 12. Israel's leaders want to silence Amos. They don't want to hear the word of the Lord anymore. Verse 11 and 12, chapter 8. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine for bread or a thirst for water, but rather for hearing the words of the Lord. People will stagger from sea to sea and from the north even to the east. They will go to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, but they will not find it. So what is God's response to Israel's desire to shut up his prophets? God says, I'll give you what you want. You don't want to hear the prophets? I won't let you hear the prophets anymore. You'll no longer be given my revelation. That could save you. Instead, you will die in your sins. That's what you want. That's what I'll give you. That will be my judgment. And though this could find fulfillment in different times with Israel, this certainly found fulfillment during the exile. Many people of Israel were dispersed into lands with new gods and no faithful Jewish priests or Levites to instruct them in the way of the Lord. They lost access. They, they were cut off from God's saving word. That was his judgment. So the picture is bleak as you come to the final chapter of Amos. Israel, if you turn, you will be spared God's judgment, but you seem unwilling. Therefore, God will spare the faithful ones among you, but the rest of you will be destroyed and taken into exile. We see how Israel was supposed to respond. Certainly there was still hope by the time of Amos' writing because that's why he's written this book. He says, still, listen, repent, turn to seek the Lord and live. Maybe even if the whole nation doesn't do it, you individually do it. But then there's one more word from Amos, a surprising word. A word regarding the distant future of Israel. And I want us to look at that before we come to our final conclusions and applications. Look at chapter 9, verse 8. Israel has shown to be completely wicked. They're not repenting. God says in Amos 9, 8, Behold, the eyes of the Lord God are on the sinful kingdom, and I will destroy it from the face of the earth. Nevertheless, I will not totally destroy the house of Jacob declares the Lord. And then, verses 11, I'm sorry, yeah, verses 11 to 15, God speaks of another day. In that day, I will raise up the fallen booth of David and wall up its breaches, and I will raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord who does this. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman will overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows seed, when the mountains will drip sweet wine and all the hills will be dissolved. Also, I will restore the captivity of my people Israel and they will rebuild the ruined cities and live in them. They will also plant vineyards and drink their wine and make gardens and eat their fruit. I will also plant them on their land and they will not again be rooted out from their land, which I've given them says the Lord your God. This is amazing. And this is very surprising considering the rest of this book. What are the different promises that God is giving here regarding Israel's future? What's one of them? Right? Back in verse 8, he says, I won't destroy you completely. What else? Yes, Danielle. Right, he's going to restore their prosperity. In fact, there's a, that image in verse 12, I'm sorry, verse 13, it's a little bit confusing at first, but it's an image of prosperity and abundance. The idea that plowman overtaking the reaper most likely refers to that there is such an abundant harvest, the people have not finished harvesting it before it's time to plant new seed. So the, the plowman is overtaking the reaper because the reaper has too much to take in. It's going to be abundance. There's going to be so much abundance that when it comes to the 
grapes on the hills and mountains of the land, it's going to be so abundant, the mountains themselves are dripping with wine. And it's almost like they're dissolving in the wine. There's so much of it. So we've got prosperity and abundance coming. People will not be destroyed. What else? They'll be planted in the land and they'll never be taken out of it again. Yeah, now that's really, right. This would also be very surprising. Verse 12, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name. The word nations can also be translated Gentiles. This is referring to non-Israelites. He says they're going to be possessed, they're going to be ruled and led by Israel, and yet they're not simply subjugated because these nations are called by my name. They're going to be worshipers along with Israel. And then there's that the promises about things being rebuilt. Now, verse 11, there's some difference of interpretation here. The fallen booth of David, does that refer to Jerusalem? Because that was the dwelling place of David. Or does it refer to the house, the dynasty of David? Some difference there. Uh, the word is not house, it's booth. Uh, you can argue maybe different ways. But there's a promise of rebuilding either Jerusalem or the Davidic kingship. There's the, the promise the Gentile nations will be ruled and led by Israel. Extreme prosperity and abundance. A return from captivity to the land. And then a promise never to be taken from the land again. Amazing. Amazing way to end this book. Now let's step back. Running low on time, but we'll want to take some time to come to some conclusions based on what we've read. How does God reveal his character in this book? Consider all his interactions. How is he showing who he is? Yeah, we see that. Uh, what, what aspect does that show of God? Is merciful, right? That's our theme, justice and mercy. God's mercy and giving them time to repent and sending lesser judgments and promising this restoration and various other things. We see God's mercy, God's kindness, God's heart. This is not deserved, but he does it because that's the kind of God he is. What else? Yeah, Rob. God can pour out severe judgment even on his own people. Yeah, God's holiness, right? He does not, uh, and his justice. He is so holy and just that if his own people require judgment, he will send it. He has to do it. Their evil is even more reprehensible than the evil of others because they're his people. He is a holy and just God. We could point out other aspects here. He's a God who keeps covenant either to bless or to curse. He's being faithful to keep his covenant according to the curses that he promised to Israel, but he's going to be faithful to also relent of judgment if they repent and also to bring them back into the land just as he promised back in Deuteronomy. We see that God is powerful and sovereign. He'll bring the Assyrians. He, um, he will cause all these things to happen to Israel. He's holy and just. He takes sin extremely seriously. He's patient and merciful. He loves justice and goodness. You can see that sin is not a victimless crime. The people are harming themselves. They are defaming God, and they are harming others. Again and again in the book, he says, this is what you're doing to the poor. This is what you're doing to the righteous. You're oppressing them. You're taking advantage of them. You're selling them. I see that. I'm going to vindicate them, and I'm going to judge you. And we see God's care for the lowly and oppressed. And of course, these are the many same aspects of God we see throughout the scriptures. God doesn't change. He's displaying his attributes here. And he still has those attributes. So, of course, that's going to be relevant for our application. I think I've already mentioned why Amos wrote this book. This was a call to repentance for the people at his own time, but even for the people afterwards, anyone who hears it. Remember, this is the kind of God you're dealing with. Turn back to the Lord. And now back to Amos 9. We know how things turn out for Israel. They don't repent. Within 50 to 75 years, God is still patient with them, but then he brings the judgment. He brings the promised judgment. Kingdom, the kingdom of Israel is removed, and the survivors are taken beyond Damascus and beyond the Euphrates. But have the promises of Amos 9 been fulfilled? We could only answer partially. It's true that God later brought some back from Israel and Judah back into the land. This happened under the Persian Empire. It's true that these returners experienced some measure of blessing for a time. 
but they also experienced trouble and persecution. It's true that Jerusalem was rebuilt, if that was the meaning of Amos 9.11. It's even true that James, the brother of John, cites Amos 9.12. Actually, that might be James, the brother of Jesus. Cites Amos 9.12 during the Jerusalem council as proof that the Gentiles have a place in God's kingdom and in God's salvation plans. He goes back and says, look, Amos said so. That's Acts 15, verses 13 to 18, by the way. I would nonetheless argue, though, these promises have not yet been fully realized. Israel has not possessed, not ruled and led, certainly not cooperatively, the Gentile nations. Israel has not experienced the extreme prosperity described in Amos 9.13. And Israel has never been permanently secure in its land. Let's not forget that though some Jews were brought back into Palestine under the Persians, the Jews were removed again from the land after a series of revolts under Rome in AD 66 to AD 136. Their nation was dissolved, the people were dispersed, and there was no Jewish nation for more than 1,500 years. The Jews were dispersed in the world and did not have a state, let alone a state in Palestine, until 1948. And though that state exists today, it is hardly secure. It is under constant threat from its neighbors. So rather than saying that Israel's return under Persia fulfilled these prophecies, or that Israel in the church spiritually fulfills these prophecies, I submit that we have not seen their fulfillment yet, not their full fulfillment. Like the prophecies of Moses regarding a permanently circumcised heart for Israel, so we see here that God has plans for Israel's restoration in the future. And I would say that is in Christ's second coming. But what does the book of Amos mean for us? We're not the northern kingdom. We're not under the threat of Assyrian invasion. So why does this matter? I've only got about a minute, so I'll just list some application questions for you. We certainly see here that when it comes to that notion that God is love and God is good and he forgives and he would never judge sin or send anyone or never get angry over sin or send anyone to hell, that's just not the God of the Bible. That's an incomplete picture of God. And you can just go straight to the book of Amos and show, no, first of all, we can see God's wrath right here. We can see his holiness. But second of all, because he's good and loving, he must judge sin. Because sin is so reprehensible and it hurts so many people. The only way we can know what God's character truly is is by going to where he revealed it. And we're not going to get that just by looking around the world or even looking at creation. The only clear revelation of God comes through the Bible a clear revelation of his character. But we've already alluded that though we're not Israel in the situation that they were, our situation is not that different because we also are, have a judgment coming. The world also has a judgment coming. The Son of Man will return. Jesus will return and he will judge each man according to his deeds. And just as he explained in the Gospels, he was telling people in light of that, how should you be acting? Psalm 2.12 says, Do homage to the Son, that he not become angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath may soon be kindled. We're in the same situation as Amos. The world is in the same situation, and people are doing the same thing as Israel was doing, living luxuriously, oppressing the poor, oppressing the righteous, persecuting the righteous, living immorally. All the same things. God's judgment is kindled on our world, and on us today. We need to seek the Lord that we may live, and we also need to be like Amos. We're not commissioned prophets in the same way that he was, but we are commissioned in a similar way, just as Jesus' disciples were. We have to end right now, but next week, we'll look at another prophet of Israel, Hosea, who brings another surprising message, and the title of the next lesson is God's God loves Israel. We'll see how he was going to act based on that love. If you have other questions, please see me afterwards. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word. It is a sobering word because the same truths that were true for Israel and Amos during that time are true for us today. The lion roars. You roar, God. Your judgment is coming. You've made that known in your word. And people everywhere must repent. No one will escape. You will not wink at any sin. 
all evil must be judged by you because you are holy and just. And yet, God, you are merciful. And anyone who turns to you leaves aside the evil way and repents, follows after you, you will rescue. You will protect him from the judgment. You will spare him and you will bring him into your most intimate fellowship. We thank you for that, God. We thank you for doing that for us, for those who believe. Pray for those who don't believe that they would turn and be saved. In Jesus' name, amen.